0: love Talk
1: Radio.
0: You are listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, August twenty third, twenty twenty two. And I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest this evening is Diamira Rose D'Agostino, who has devoted the last 15 years to allyship between the fairy and human realms. Her work has taken her to places of mystical power all over the world, where she facilitated land in lineage healings across multiple timelines while also building the New Earth infrastructure of ley lines, grids, and inner earth star temples to support awakening consciousness from the inside out. Diamira has activated and embodied the living fairy codes as a healing medicine frequency in service to Gaia and humanity. She offers these codes of enchantment to open fairy portals of holy remembrance to awaken you into embodied mythic reality in her new book, Initiation, My Fairy Soul Awakening. The heart of her work is as Keeper of New Avalon, a multidimensional community within the Blue Ridge Mountains. Woven within the sacred ecology of New Earth, New Avalon is anchored by a star temple garden surrounded by an ancient forest and sourced from the well of light. Here, she communes and listens at the well's edge as the stories of the New Earth sing through her and into the world in the form of transmissions, mythic threshold journeys, and vibrational essence medicines of forest, flower, and elemental alchemy. You can check out her website, which is Diomira Rose, and that is spelled D-I-O-M-I-R-A Rose, R-O-S-E, dot com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And if you have Starseed children or grandchildren and you're constantly trying to get them off the screens, I've written a book to help children want to put the phone down and reconnect with Mother Nature by understanding the animal guides of Native America. It's called Magical Messages from the Animal Kingdom, and it's on Amazon. If you just type Ariel Taylor in the search bar, you'll get right to it. And we'd like to thank uh, Kathy and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment. Our main website is starseedhotline.com, and the stage one Starseed confirmations are based on lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart and the stage two session is a one-on-one zoom session available with anastasia emerald miara riley or myself lavendar has now retired from doing sessions so she can finish her book and continue writing for starseeds and remember if you have a birthday coming up you're going to get a window of 10 hours of great manifestational ability so you need to find out exactly when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. Uh, that usually takes less than a week, but don't wait till the last minute. So first up tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia and her wonderful, amazing Starseed News. Good evening, Arielle. Hello,
2: everybody. It's Hello. so great to be back with you. Great. Good. Well, we have some news to share. And I want to tell you tonight, starting about uh, sea turtles. And incidentally, I think this might be related to some of the pandemic shutdowns over the last two years. I am, in the research for the news, finding so many uh, bellwether changes in the natural populations of animals and such. um, The environment does seem to be improving. And uh, they have attributed it to improvements on some of the things that we do certainly Uh, legislatively and and such as that. But I do think some of this is just related to the withdrawal of humans from the natural habitats and changes like that. Anyway, sea turtle populations are on the rise along the United States Gulf Coast. That's big news. Uh, Beach crews have found the first sea sea turtle nest on the Mississippi mainland in four years. Uh, They've done that. Four years seems to be a key. For all these states, uh, Georgia's endangered sea turtles are being uh, productive. They're multiplying, having babies in record numbers. And for the first time, the world's rarest species of sea turtles, the ridley turtle, has laid eggs on Magnolia Beach in Texas. And in, in the meantime, in the Mississippi Gulf Coast, they've discovered again the first sea turtle nest since 2018. That's their four-year four year mark. And this week, Georgia has officially hit its record for sea turtle nests with almost 4,000 nests recorded. That's a lot. So overall, the Gulf of Mexico, as you all probably know, is very important to sea turtles. And because of the 2010 oil spill and a couple of other environmental disasters that have happened there, um, it's greatly damaged the population. It's been a big worry. But wildlife officials now tell us that the increase in the breeding Among these turtles means that the environment is finally starting to heal. That's good news, as the sea turtles have needed this for a long time, and so for them, things are finally looking up. We've really been concerned about the Ridley turtle. It has really been endangered, so goodness sakes, I'm telling you, things are getting a little better out there for nature things. And here's a related story. Uh, Sea turtles have been in the news this week. (laughs) I couldn't imagine this, but sheriff's deputies in Florida help rescue lost sea turtle hatchlings that, of all things, accidentally wandered into a hotel lobby. So this is one of those hotels that was located on the beach. And somehow the little turtles made it from their hatching place, wandered into the hotel lobby. (laughs) They were trying to find the ocean. Well, a security guard (laughs) at a hotel in uh, St. Pete Beach called up the sheriff's office and said, Help, I need backup because he discovered and collected 15 infant turtles early that morning. And there were lots Uh more to round up. Two arms just weren't enough for the dozens of turtles they needed to gather. Well, once the roundup was finally finished, these human rescuers released the babies at the water's edge and then decided to let them crawl for a little bit on their own, pulled them back a little bit from the water. They wanted the turtle instinct to kick in, to do its job. Well, happily, the sheriff's department announced that with some words of encouragement and guidance from us, all the hatchlings made their way to the water successfully. Aww. In a hotel lobby of all things. <laughs> all right. Well everything's safe now. I'm reporting to everybody. The sea turtles are doing well as of tonight. That's great. I bet sheriffs kinda of wish that deputies would <laughs> that would be all the calls they ever got to help rescue yeah. baby animals. Instead <laughs> of the other stuff they have to do. Right. Well, here's an interesting story, man. When you think of airline pilot, I'll bet you practically everybody thinks of a man. Mm. I think most people do. Well, nowadays we might kind of accept and maybe expect that a woman's going to be a pilot, but catch this. Um, Southwest Airlines has made an announcement. Uh, A mother and a daughter, mother and daughter team, have made history as Southwest Airlines' first mother-daughter pilot duo. Recently, the mother-daughter team flew their first Southwest flight together from Denver, where these two women are from, all the way to St. Louis. The mother said, by the way, the photograph in the, on the newspaper is really something. They look just alike, the mother and daughter, older and younger versions, both of them in the cockpit, pilot and co-pilot. The mother said, it's been very emotional for me. One moment, you're holding this tiny little premature baby in your arms, and in the blink of an eye, she's sitting right next to you on the flight deck of a Boeing 737 jet. <laughs> well, according to a Southwest press release, this mother had dreamed of being a pilot after riding in the jump seat while she was working as a flight attendant for another airline. Now, I don't know what a jump seat is. Maybe some of you know. It's probably something in, in the front. I don't know. Anyway, she thought that was pretty cool. She decided she wanted to be a pilot. So while raising children, while her husband was working, while they were trying to support three children, she also took flying lessons when she wasn't being a flight attendant. Well, when the daughter got to be 14, she said she wanted to follow in her mother's footsteps, and she wanted to be a pilot, too. So four years ago, she earned her pilot's license. The mother said, it's been a dream come true working with my daughter like this. First I found this career, I was in love with it, and then one of my kids chose the same things and loves it too. The airline said in the statement, not only are mother and daughter making Southwest history, but they're also breaking barriers and empowering women of all ages to pursue their dreams in aviation and, pun intended, reach for the skies.
0: <laughs>
2: no, that I just thought that was pretty cool. It's really odd. To see a photo of two women, and they're both relatively young, wearing captain suits or, you know, stripes or whatever, in the cab or the cockpit of a 747, both looking as happy as they could be. Pretty cool story. Uh Well, I don't know if this has happened to you guys, and you might have recalled, I think I might have mentioned it to you on the show before, who knows when, a long time ago. About the time I was driving up an interstate and came across what I called a herd of ducks. Ah, yikes, that's very alarming. Well, here's a story that happened to somebody else, a whole bunch of other people. Motorists had to stop traffic on the busy Interstate 405 in Washington to save a family of ducks. The traffic on 405 came to a complete halt yesterday as a family of fowl tried to make a waddle for it across the busy freeway. <laughs> The babies were on the northbound lanes of the highway, according to a tweet from the Washington State Department of Transportation. Social media alerts explained the problem. Yikes! We have baby ducklings trying to cross northbound I 405. That's what's causing this backlog. Washington State Patrol is en route. Please drive with extra caution in this area. Expect delays while folks try to gather up the ducks.
1: Well. <coughs>
2: This incident caused about a ten-minute backup, with a very happy ending. Thank goodness the duck family had been safely removed from the road and waddled on their way. Uh, I think it's a miracle that the traffic stopped. That's, that's a, uh, to me particularly. That's a particularly wonderful story. I'm glad I I'm glad I lived long enough to hear that. The ducks made it. Yeah. And here's a story about an elephant. Man, if you were thinking about an elephant needing CPR or huh? how would you give an elephant CPR? Well, it happened. Somebody gave an elephant CPR. But here's the story. They tell us that, ve- that veterinarians took swift action to rescue a mother elephant and her calf that fell into a drain in Thailand. They have photographs of this. It's sad. The baby's adorable. Little tiny thing. Rescuers had to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation on the mother elephant to save her life. The incident began when a baby elephant had fallen into a manhole in a national park in in central Thailand. Well, the mother was frantic. Now, elephants are highly intelligent, highly connected emotively, and they're very attached to their babies. And the mother was beside herself. So when the rescue team arrived with veterinarians they used anesthetic shots to subdue the mother elephant they had to get her calmed down but the startling commotion resulted in her halfway falling into the muddy hole the hole had uneven ground and the elephant was laying on a pitch kind of semi-vertical the mother elephant fainted and they said it was probably due to stress but on the other hand they couldn't rouse her so there's an anguished video that shows The veterinarian's attempt to resuscitate this mother. Now, as you might imagine, CPR for an elephant is administered on a large scale, and the person had to climb onto the elephant's side while standing on this pitched dirt, attempting to balance and maintain rhythm as he jumped up and down on her rib cage. All the while, this adorable and frantic baby was squealing. Well, happily, this story, as you probably know, has a very good ending. The video shows the mother's return to consciousness, the cuddling reunion of the two, and an undamaged elephant mother walking away from the accident scene with her tiny baby in a tail-twitching toe. Really sweet. And there's nothing that'll melt you like a baby elephant. Yikes, are they cute. Nice story. Yeah. Here's a, um, uh, um, you know, thinking about making the world better, things that we can do to improve states of consciousness, justice, love, and light on planet Earth. It means we have to take care of those that are disadvantaged and give everybody a fair shake. And in a nation characterized by abundance, it's pretty dumbfounding that over 10%, well over 10% of households in the United States have food insecurity. This becomes even more horrifying when we consider that an estimated 40% of America's food ends up in the trash. And with this in mind, we can ask ourselves the question, how can we ensure that everybody in America, or everybody in the world, has access to healthy food? Why should that even be a question? Well, we can find an answer by looking at a city in Brazil. The name of the city is Belo Horizonte, and it's a city of two and a half million people. It's a couple hundred miles north of Rio de Janeiro. It's an industrial and technological hub. Like all big cities of that kind, it has high rates of poverty, not so different from many U.S. cities. But despite this, this Brazilian place has managed to effectively eliminate hunger. Eliminate it thanks to a pioneering food security system that requires less than 2% of the city's annual budget. Here's how they did it. A couple decades ago, the city enacted a municipal law that established a citizen's right to food. All right, I'm all for that. They created a commission of government officials, farmers, labor leaders, and others, tasked with a mandate to provide access to food as a measure of social justice. Yes, why not? Well, the city's food security system now, today, comprises 20 interconnected programs that connect food producers directly to consumers. No retail profit. They offer healthy, fresh food at fixed, low costs, and at certain popular restaurants, that's a given. They provide food directly to schools, daycare centers, clinics, nursing homes, shelters, charitable organizations. They've established farmers markets and stands to allow farmers to sell their goods directly to people. They've regulated food prices for specific items that must be sold up to 50% below market price. They also formed food banks to distribute unused produce from those markets, and they established community and school gardens, tossing in educational classes and nutrition for all Brazilians. Again, this food security program only requires 2% of the city's annual budget, which is a pretty small amount, considering those same citizens can then use the money they would have to have spent on food to take care of other basic needs, which ultimately reduces poverty, increases the health of the population, and makes for a more stable government. So win-win all the way around. Can be done, should be done. We can do the same thing with homelessness in this country. You beautiful star seed out there. You brilliant lights. Some projects for you. The world's waiting for you with open arms. There's so many good things we can do. Speaking of good deeds, I have to ask myself honestly. I shouldn't confess this, but I'm going to. I would be challenged, I think. I hate to admit it. To do something this wonderful, I'll admit it. Doesn't mean I wouldn't do it, mind you. But I would be challenged. A journalist named Dmitry Muratov got a gold prize. He uh, he got a um, the Nobel Peace Prize, excuse me. And uh, he did something with it. Well, the story starts out, it has to do with Ukraine. Uh, the story tells us that Ukrainian children and their families, uprooted from their homes due to the invasion, are going to get a benefit from this benefactor, um, Dmitry Muratov. He was the editor-in-chief of Russia's independent newspaper, announced earlier this year that he was selling his gold Nobel Peace Prize that he won in 2021 with plans to donate all the money, all the proceeds from the sale of this gold medal to Ukrainian refugees, Wait you find out how much you sold it for. How much it went for, that is. Anyway, yesterday it sold. An anonymous buyer agreed to fork over $103.5 million for this medal with the agreement oh. that the money from the sales will go to the UNICEF agency for the Ukrainians. Now, the auction price smashed, devastated the record held for selling a Nobel metal, which came in 2014 when somebody ponied up nearly a measly $5 million for James Watson's metal. James Watson, anybody recognize that? This is the guy that discovered DNA's double helix in 1962. That was the highest price, $5 million. The, me- the metal sold yesterday brought $103.5 million.
1: Wow. Wow. Well.
2: We said, they said, we hope that this will serve as an example for other people like a flash mob, for other people to auction their valuable possessions, their heirlooms, to help Ukrainian refugees around the world, the writer said, before the bidding got started. Even heritage auction purveyors were thrown by this final selling piece of this medal, which, according to the New York Times, denotes, uh, said that there were gasps in the crowd when it was announced. The paper reports that bidding had been cruising along in increments of $100,000 or $200,000 when suddenly it spiked from $16.6 million to $103.5 million. Well, he won this Peace Prize last year for defending freedom of expression in Russia. Although the newspaper that he founded back in 1993 was forced to suspend publication at the end of March, Earlier this month, he told The Times he'd been inspired to sell his medal by physicist Niels Bohr of Denmark, somebody I greatly admire, who sold his own medal in 1940 to help Finland after it was invaded by the Soviet Union. The most important message today is for people to understand that there's a war going on, and we need to help people who are suffering the most. Wow. I mean, silence everybody. Not only yeah. did he give up something that is a... Not many people in this world get Nobel Prizes. No, they don't. That's an enormous accomplishment for a human being. And then, to have it worth $105 million, it probably wouldn't have brought that much if he hadn't been auctioning it for a wonderful cause. But that's a double give. Yeah. And then inspiring others to do the same. I'm just like, wow. I thank that beautiful soul for being here and all the beautiful souls who contributed, and all the other beautiful souls who are doing wonderful things to make this world a better place. (sighs) Love you all. All right. A lot of people like garlic. Garlic is good for you. Did you know something about garlic? That how you cook it matters? Well, let me tell you this. Garlic is one of the world's favorite flavors, and despite its potential for unsavory breath, you probably already know the herb is good for us. Garlic is an antiviral, and antibacterial. It's also high in B vitamins, C, E, K, zinc, folate, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, and sodium. When we put it with other vegetables of similar kind, like onions, leeks, shallots, or scallions, it also enhances the zinc and the iron that's available in it. But here's the kicker. Something else to know about garlic. I didn't know this till I researched the news. It's rich in, well, I knew this. It's, <laughs> I didn't know what I'm going to tell you about cooking it. It's rich in gut-healthy prebiotic fibers and an enzyme called enzyme called alanase. Now, this alanase this enzyme is the thing with antibacterial, antiviral, and antifungal properties. Now, knowing that won't do us any good if we don't know how to prepare garlic before we eat it because how we prepare it, according to this article, determines the benefits we'll get from it. To understand this, we have to take a look at the enzyme alinase. This enzyme converts the alin in garlic into a compound called elicin, which gives garlic its health benefits. Now, if we're going to absorb these properties of health-giving substances, they tell us to let chopped garlic sit for 10 minutes before we cook it. They tell us. Excuse me. They tell us that ten minutes is the amount of time that's needed for the alanase to activate and to convert the allicin uh, to activate the allicin in the garlic. I probably should quit doing stories where I have to use these big long names, but the bottom <laughs> line is the bottom line is if you're gonna eat garlic and you wanna eat it because it's healthy, not just because it tastes good, they tell us to let it sit for ten minutes after uh, chopping because you need that time to activate these substances in it that make it healthy for you. Other than, of course, the vitamins. I don't think it matters with the vitamins, but certainly with the enzymatic functions of the garlic. Interesting. Well, in this uh, little story, this newscast we've done before, we've talked about the problems with military sonar. And I certainly know that Starseed are, are well informed about this. The sonar from ships and submarines is thought to be actually known to be one of the contributing factors to whale strandings and whale deaths. It confuses the whale's sonar, causes them to beach themselves. Many of us have been worried about whales and Navy technology. Well, this whale-friendly, techn- whale-unfriendly technology may soon have an alternative. A project manager at U.S. Military Research Agency, DARPA, believes that we could detect submarines by paying more attention to natural sound than using sonar. Brilliant. They have a project underway. It's called Persistent Aquatic Living Sensors, or PALS for short. And this project eavesdrops on marine animals as a way of detecting underwater threats. This PALS system could instead cover a wide region of underwater territory for months and can provide a clear uh, way of monitoring coastlines and underwater channels for other submarines, unfriendly submarines. How does it work? What do we mean? I know your brain's going, huh? What are you talking about? Eavesdrops on marine animals as a way to detect underwater threats. I didn't know this, did you? Undersea animals make all kinds of noises. It's noisy down there. They make huh. all kinds of sounds and they respond to foreign invasions, things they're not familiar with. They send up alarms. Now, give you an example. As a part of this research project to develop this program, they've divided people up into groups to study undersea life and the sounds that they make so that they can develop the software and the technology to detect this particular sound and study their behavior. And anyway, convert uh, from under uh, Navy sonar, which is so harmful to whales and dolphins, whales anyway, uh, and to convert that into this natural method. So they have a team to study grouper fish to see what kinds of fish, oh, excuse me, what kinds of sounds these groupers make and how it works. Now, grouper fish, they're called Goliath groupers. These fish weigh up to 660 pounds. They say they're common in the U.S. waters, but here's the thing. They produce a very loud, low-frequency booming call. Their booms can be detected almost 3,000 feet away. Their calls are the ocean version of listening for a guard dog to bark at intruders. This software... Can listen to the grouper fish once they understand their habits, and you know they, they they make calls for other things too. So the scientists are trying to weigh what is the alarm sound they send up when they're invaded or something foreign has entered their territory. They're trying to discern this language of these undersea creatures and gear that to their software and their algorithms so they can tell um, the fish will stand guard and they will report something. Now. The idea of capping fish conversations, spying on them, may seem ridiculous. But you have to consider something about a bed of pistol shrimp. Shrimp? Pistol shrimp, that's what they're called. Those shrimp emit a steady roaring that researchers have compared to the sound of baking frying. Actually, they have been called the loudest creatures on Earth.
1: Huh.
2: These pistol shrimp make their distinctive snap by closing their pincers so fast they create a vacuum bubble which collapses in a burst of plasma measuring thousands of degrees. I'm not making this up. What? This produces a (laughs) flash of light and a shock wave that's powerful enough to stun their prey. See, there's a lot of activity there under the water. So they tell us that tuning into the sounds made by normal marine life would give researchers a low-cost, environmentally friendly way of tracking submarines underwater. These low-impact observational systems can be deployed to many different environments without disrupting the ecosystem nature has long established. This would be useful for projects like offshore wind farms, oil drilling, seabed mining, they tell us that all we have to do is come to understand the language of and listen to nature. Hopefully, we're going to see a critical change in submarine detection, one that will cause no more whale casualties from tech like sonar. And rather than being a threat to wildlife, submarine hunters might start working in partnership with the natural world to the benefit of everyone. And I mean... You know, every time we're together, I'm always kind of wide-eyed at at what I'm finding out, that science can achieve Uh, some wonderful, wonderful things. As a species, we're capable of solving just about any problem that we face. If we can do it with the right attitude and in the spirit of generosity and concern for each other and concern for, you know, the other life on the planet, if we can just put ourselves last and begin to put each other first. Working in cooperation for the good of all, anything is possible. I mean, what a time to be alive. They have this new, um, I'm not reporting on this per se, I'm just sharing it, um, this new substance that they've invented. Um, It's kind of a gel or a cellulose thing that can completely replace cartilage in knees. That's going to be available next year, I guess. That will com- probably eliminate the necessity of a, a knee implant. So many things are coming into the fore of healing and transformation on many levels. If we could only get our consciousness to go that far, and if we could, and broadly speaking, as a general population on the planet, if we can convert the consciousness to rise up, then think of the how these inventions could be used, the kinds of ways that we could. Have technology serve the planet instead of us serving it. You know, put the heart back into things. Bring in some love and keep our humanity while we're at it. Only the better version of that. Speaking of heart, from my heart to each and every one of you, much love. Have a beautiful couple of weeks. Thank you, Ariel, for the opportunity to be with you and my sisters. I just love you guys so much.
0: Thank you Uh. so much. You're so welcome. Great job with the news, Anastasia. Yeah, I am I wish I had a Nobel Prize so I could sell it.
2: <laughs> you would, and I love you for that. I would. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. I think I would. Okay. Too. Really, I would. <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm not saying I, would, I wouldn't
0: have to think okay. about it.
3: <laughs> all right.
0: Okay, love we'll to talk all to all you it. in two weeks. Okay.
3: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: All right, so let me get... Uh, Get things situated here. I'm going to get D'Amira's mic open and Lavendar's mic open. Okay. Are you there, Lav? I'm here. Lavendar? Okay. Okay, good. D'Amira? I'm here. Can you hear us all right? I'm here. Excellent. Okay. Lavendar, take it away.
3: Okay. So I am so happy to know that someone has written a book about fairies because the fairy energy seems to be rising now all over the planet, and it has been doing this for the last few years. So welcome, my friend, and tell us everything you want to tell us about fairies. Let's just start out with, first of all, how did you discover a fairy?
4: (laughs) Well... First of all, thank you so much, Lavendar and Arielle, for having me here. I've been looking forward to this for uh, weeks, and I know we thought we might meet a little earlier, but the stars had other ideas, and here we are, and it feels perfect. So I'm just really happy and looking forward to our conversation tonight. So thank you so much. Yeah. So So, so have
3: have you had – early experiences in your life with fairies?
4: Yeah, so my, my life is, you know, so many of my beautiful colleagues out there have these wonderful stories that start something like, I was a full-blown clairvoyant from the time I was young or I remember seeing and talking to fairy beings when I was five years old and moving through all kinds of different inner realm experiences. But my experience actually started really, really, really differently. And I share a lot of this uh, in my book, but the way that my experience was really different was that it was actually born of a, this deep soul knowing. So rather than actually seeing and being able to see these realms and being able to have conversations with these realms when I was little, it was as if I just knew within my being that these realms were not just in existence, but that they were actually somehow a part of us. It was as if I expected to lift up a rock and, and see (laughs) an entrance to these realms. And the fact that I was never able to really access those realms as a little girl actually brought a great deal of homesickness and sadness for me. I, for a long time, I thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought that, you know, it was almost like I felt I had this experience of feeling a little bit gaslit by the rest of the world. Because aside from my mother, you know, the conversation and idea of fairies actually being real was something that was laughed at. And so I I really struggled because I just had this inner sense that, and it wasn't just fairies. I had this deep inner sense that magic, that there was this essence to life that as if I should be able to look out at the world around me and see this other sort of spiritual layer our luminescence of reality. It was like that's what I felt in my heart, but the world outside me didn't match up to that. And so parallel to this whole experience, my early childhood upbringing was actually fraught with a lot of dysfunction in terms of, you know, my family and just all kinds of challenges with both my parents. And so between these two kind of parallel experiences, I ended up just developing this insatiable, insatiable, like could not be put out desire to seek out and find the truth that I knew existed. And I didn't exactly know what that truth was, but I knew there was something more than what the school systems were telling me. I knew that there was something more to life than just what society kind of impresses upon a young child. And so I began that exploration at a very, very young age. I mean, by eight or nine, I had tarot cards, and I was trying to figure out how to make the pictures talk to me. By 12, I was reading books and trying to cast spells on my own. Um, And so this, this sort of search just kept me going. And finally, when I was in my early 20s, I was in my first year of college, I believe. And I started to feel this inner call just sort of cracking open within me. If before it was loud, now it was as if I couldn't sit in my own chair still any longer. I I had to just search after it. But I had read every book I could find on spirituality and awakening consciousness and connecting to other realms. And they weren't, especially the work on fairies, it it wasn't depicting the energy that I felt in my heart and I knew to be true. So this set me on an incredible exploration it took me to multiple continents I went to I searched you know I traveled to very um, quite a few countries in my early 20s I ended up working three or four jobs just so I could afford my travels and I didn't spend money on anything else <laughs> not new clothes not anything it was just traveling And I would go to sacred sites all over the world that were calling to me. And this seemed to have some sort of, it was as if I had been talking to the universe the whole time, and now it was like the universe was talking to me. And I started to enter into what I would call this multidimensional conversation with spirit. And that showed up at first in very subtle ways, just like I was talking about, this impulse. But eventually it started showing up and manifesting in the form of synchronicities that I had to put one foot in front of the other to follow and to trust. And in the end, it ended up leading me to what I consider my fairy initiation, my deep underworld initiation into the realm of fairy into the fairy mysteries and that happened on a place that was my spiritual home for a very very long time which some of you may know and it's called the glastonbury tour in glastonbury in england which a lot of people consider this place to be connected with avalon and to be connected with the heart chakra of the planet So I found myself on one of my (laughs) seemingly haphazard adventures, and I found myself in Glastonbury. I had never heard of Glastonbury before. I just found myself. It was a serendipitous arrival, as so many of these circumstances are. And, of course, as soon as I arrived the hill so the tor for those of you who don't know is this it's a hill it's a mound and it is surmountable you can climb it it is a bit of a climb but it can be done if you're you know in somewhat good active shape and on the top of it is still the remnants of a an old church maybe from i don't know 500 six seven hundred maybe more hundred years ago and there's just a lone tower on the very top and so it's this iconic image that everybody sort of connects in with Avalon and with the energies of fairy of course I didn't know any of this upon my arrival and I had a huge surprise And what happened was that I, again, that call that I had seemingly been hearing all my life that I just had to trust and I had been following, it was as if the moment that I laid eyes on the tour, that call got louder and louder as if I had finally gotten close to the source of that pulsing energy that had been calling me maybe all my life, and so I began to climb this ancient hill, and I climbed, and I climbed, and I climbed, and it was one of those moments where you're climbing, and you just, you almost kind of are outside of your body watching yourself climb and have this experience, and I was almost in this hypnotic trance, and as I reached the top of the hill, I began to feel almost this summons like an invisible cord pulling me and there's this uh on on one side of the tower there's this circular on top of the hill uh, there's a circular rock sort of structure and I walked over to that place and I sat down and within seconds I descended into the center into the heart of this hill. Now, of course, I am talking about in vision here, but it actually felt like a full body, multi experience. It, it didn't just feel like a vision. It actually felt like, like the full of me was descending into the earth and I could feel the darkness and I can still remember the way that the soil felt as I'm like being pulled through the earth. And there's this There's this almost like a staircase that begins to unfurl, and I find my footing, and I'm walking down this staircase into this deep abyss, this darkness. And it is in this place that I come into contact with what is a, a sort of matted knot of energy at the time, I had no idea what this was. I just knew that something wasn't right about it. There was a, it was some sort of distortion in the land. And of course, at this time, I wasn't trained in this kind of um, exploration and this kind of uh, land energy work at all. And so I just followed my own heart. I followed my own intuition. And as I did, what happened was that something began to ignite within me as if I knew all along what to do. I knew how to undo these knots. And it was, you know, did I untie it with my hands, with my heart, with the elemental forces within me? It was probably all those things and none of them. And as I released the last few strands, I could see the 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 energy kind of, erupting in the land as if I had somehow, unbeknownst to me, unleashed some sort of floodgate. And in that moment, a rush of energy came up from the depths of the land as if it had been held bound for, I don't know, thousands of years. And it came rushing. And in that rush were droves and droves of nature spirits and elemental beings. And then it seemed as if the whole world seemed to empty out and this golden light seemed to flood out into the land. And I could see the ley lines, which I would later learn that there were these two very powerful ley lines running through um, the the sort of converging at the hill. And I would see the ley lines almost as if they were, <laughs> as if they had unwrinkled themselves and they were kind of yawning or waking up from you know, this age-old sleep. And in that moment, this luminescent being, profound and ancient consciousness appeared within that place, within that space before me. And this being... He, he had the energy, first of all, had a male energy. He had the energy of a, an angel. At the same time, he was deeply rooted and woven within the dream of the earth. And he said to me, I knew you would come, and soon you will remember. And that was my first encounter with fairy.
3: So how... So how many years ago was that?
4: That was in 2006, so that was
3: quite a few years ago. Wow. I could really see, as you were talking, I could really see that happening. And also that you were, can I just say, releasing the corrupted elementals that had been bound there, and you did something with them, too, were you aware of that? So, Corrupted elements?
4: What, what I saw was that there, I, and I didn't understand it in that moment totally, but as I began to deepen into the experience and unpack it, it took me several years because his words and that experience really catalyzed a, a, a deep journey for me of really beginning to unpack, okay, well, who was this being? What did he mean by remembrance? And what is my connection to all of this? So it was really this deep journey. And part of that unpacking is I began to look back and see with my new eyes, I was very blessed to um, enter into spiritual training and learn healing arts and psychic arts that really helped me hone a lot of what I was already opening into. And, um, And in that journey, as I looked back, What I understood and what was what was my truth was that it had to do with the patriarchal grid and various um, what I was seeing was that there was um, and I hate to, you know, speak into this polarity because i do feel like we've shifted the balance on the planet i really do feel like that and i feel like the dark and the light it's all here for us all to grow and learn even within ourselves so i wanted to say that and before i preface that you know before i go into what i'm about to say um but the what i began to see was that the patriarchal grid there was actually this construct on the planet that was in operation, maybe for hundreds of years, put in place by those who knew, you know, those who practiced and worked with the, um, I would say, I don't want to say dark arts. What I want to say is the arts of self, the arts of self and, um, and, and ego, right, coming from that place. And what I saw is a lot of power places on the planet had been co-opted by these energies by beings that were working with these energies and had been actually they would take the energy lines of these places that would run through these places and then they would do something some sort of inversion some sort of geometrical inversion that would then almost siphon the energy of these beautiful sacred places so that it could be harnessed and used for the patriarchal agenda that was um, unfolding on the planet. And I saw that uh, the Glastonbury tour was not exempt from, from this, this, you know, this sort of, um, I guess, planetary agenda, if you will. And it had also been co-opted by these energies and, uh, and who knows for how long. And, and, And yeah, and so I saw what they had done was they had taken the ley lines and they had inverted them in such a way that it was siphoning the land and siphoning the life force out of, and it kept a lot of the beings that were deeply, um, you know, the, the elemental beings as I see them are very geographically connected. They're not like the she or like where they can, you know, move about as much. They're very geographically anchored. And they're, it, it, you know, it's, I mean, it sucked on their energy. It pulled their energy and it drew their energy and it drew the energy of the land for their own selfish um, agenda and desire. So that was how I experienced it and saw it.
3: Wow, what what a thing to happen in 2006 because you have been on this journey for many, many years. I'm, by 2012, were you really just into... Um, Traveling around and doing all kinds of work with land by 2012.
4: Oh my God! Yes, you so hit the nail on the nose there. Um, so once that sort of what I would call that initial that initiation unfolded on the tour, of course I spent, and this is the story really encapsulated in my book. I spent the next few years, you know, unpacking and and really. Learning what that meant for me. And of course, that the the deeper I got into knowing who I was, the more I traced that truth. What I also was met up against was trauma was old trauma from from yes, from childhood, I had to do a lot of healing on that because I didn't want the beautiful um, the beautiful energies and wisdom that was coming through. I didn't want it to come through a distorted lens and for, you know, me to make my own illusionary ideas about that. I wanted to be as clear as possible, but also I noticed that there was trauma being unleashed, unhinged, if you will, and uprooted from the past, from the deep ancient past, from across lineage and lifetimes and timelines. And I had to, you know, I know a lot of people get very excited about past lives. I was one of those. I was always very excited and curious about past lives. But the truth is, is that the only reason I ever went into my past lives was because I began to feel almost as if I couldn't move forward. There was, um, again, uh, not to go into the whole story here, but there was a huge phobia that started to really get in my way of um, deeply, deeply moving into the embodiment of who I was as a spiritual being. And so I had to address all of these pieces. I had to clear and heal and resolve and love myself into healed wholeness. All of these parts of myself that had been exiled, had been traumatized, you know, across lifetimes, you know, and, Probably played on both sides of the fence, like to be very honest, probably also had trauma from making choices that now wouldn't align with who I am, you know, and maybe who I was on a soul level. So having to do all that deep healing and at the end of that sort of first phase, how that culminated was in a full body soul recognition of who I was at my core. And part of that was I remembered myself as fairy. I remembered a time when I was fairy. And I didn't just remember the time when I was fairy. I actually had a full body multidimensional memory of the point in time that I made the choice to cross over into human consciousness and in remembering that that memory that memory of why I chose to become human why I chose to anchor deeply into (laughs) this beautiful journey of (laughs) polarity consciousness and deep emotionality I chose to do that so that I could bring through in a fully embodied human experience, the fairy codes that I felt would awaken at this time on the planet. And so once I had that sort of resounding soul recognition of this is who I am and I am here I am not here by accident. I chose to be here. And I chose to be here now at this time as we're entering into this threshold of the age of Aquarius as the great year in the wheel of time is turning once again, I chose to be here. And so once I had that knowing, then it seemed like all of my work kind of fell into line and sort of arose from that knowing. Everything that I did from that point forward, it was about how to bring <laughs> the, the magic, the enchantment that I know to be a healing code for humanity at this time, how to bring that into into the human realm and into Gaia. And so by 2012, I was already teaching. I was teaching um, workshops to lots of humans. And I, but the heart of my work, what I absolutely loved and I rarely publicized was the work that I did with the earth. And the way that it worked would be I would actually get a sort of feeling, a mission. You know, Lavendar, I was reading um, uh, some some bit on the website the other day um, about you, and it had said something like um, a galact, like your adventures were likened to. A, I don't know. It's something like a galactic. Indiana Jones, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, but and I oh, thought no, that's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and I thought, oh my God, we have so much in common. But rather than I was more like the inner Earth realms, <laughs> Indiana Jones, and I was like traversing inner Earth planes and working with um, grid lines and energy lines and working with um, again erecting the infrastructure of the new Earth, and oftentimes I would you know, I would be guided. I would have a feeling I would be guided to a place. And it was always a co-creative partnership. It was never somebody told me what to do, and then I, you know, and then I just did it. It was, I would get a feeling, a knowing, or there would be a multidimensional conversation. And then from that, I would get to make a choice. Like, do I want to take this assignment? And the answer was almost always yes. <laughs> and um, and then I would, you know, travel to these different places on the planet, sometimes by myself, sometimes I. I've, Over time, and when I became um, a more skilled facilitator, I actually would bring groups of people to different places on the planet. And sometimes they were also local adventures that I would be called to where I would just work with. um, There was a really interesting thing that started happening. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but it seems to want to come forward. And I wonder how it connects to what you mentioned earlier with the elementals that were kind of, um, uh, yeah, just had gone kind of awry. So there was something that I started to get wind of is that one of the things I would be asked to do is to support a lot of nature spirits and elemental beings um, who had been displaced. And displacement could have happened via You know, um, it could be um, you know a completely natural occurrence, like um, an an extreme storm or a hurricane or something like this, or it could be and often was a man-made disturbance, like fracking, for example. And what I would notice is that there was this displacement that was happening, and oftentimes. Um, I would be asked to create these bridges, these bridges of light that would allow for um, travel because some because in a lot of the fracking and a lot of even the cutting down of the trees, what I was shown is that when we cut down the trees without, you know, conscious partnership and understanding of which trees, you know, agree to be cut down, we disrupt the tree grid that they have in place, these configurations, these sacred mandalas of energy that the trees, you know, their growth patterns actually create and hold various circuitry that helps consciousness on the planet. And so when we cut down trees without consciousness, it will disrupt this. And so what I was seeing is that there was this disruption happening. And so I would go and, you know, either be asked to create believe it or not, new ley lines to, I didn't create them, but I helped space. And then it was like they would arise from the heart of Gaia. And then the various energies, the dragons, which seemed to want to come into the conversation, would actually help to reroute those new ley lines. And so over time I was seeing that this new infrastructure was being laid. But what was happening with the um, elemental beings is, I was seeing as the some of the old ley lines were being disturbed and some of the old grids were being disturbed that the elemental beings were becoming displaced but uh, at at the worst I actually saw some of them almost becoming disconnected from who they were and the one circumstance that I that comes to mind when I was just I mean, I couldn't believe it because I always knew the elemental and the fae, who I'll get to in a little bit, but I always knew them to have that deep rooted connection with the dream of Gaia. And, and, and so this was my first experience of really seeing not just displacement, but displacement of their consciousness. And um, what I saw, it was actually in Pennsylvania it was in um, the northern, I can't remember exactly where, but it was way north, a few hours north of Philadelphia. And it was this forest. And I was in this forest with my partner. And I could feel these, I I could feel the elementals and then these spirits of this forest. And what I noticed was there was this pervasive sadness in the land and this wasn't sadness on the primary level like the first you know surface level like it sometimes can get stuck from war or you know trauma human trauma this was like a pervasive sadness that hung in the land and when i tuned in more deeply i understood it was coming from the elemental beings And again, I I had had no experience of this effort before. And I remember we looked at each other and sometimes there is this beautiful soul recognition when I move into my heart that there's like this green flame that ignites both within me and within them. And there's this soul recognition, but they, they couldn't, they, there was, I couldn't even connect with them on a soul level. And I realized that they had forgotten who they were and the only thing, and I, I I connected into the, the deep spirit of the land and the spirit of Gaia. And I asked what was mine to do in that space. And I was actually not guided to, apparently it wasn't mine to do to actually affect or try to quote, you know, heal them in that moment. But what I was, um, invited to do if I if it felt good for me was to actually connect with the trees of the land and to allow the beautiful energies of star both out, you know, in in the sky, but also stars from the deep earth to allow it to flow up and Out into the land to flood the land with this energy and almost allow these beings these nature spirits and elementals to come back into memory on their own to allow themselves to find their own way home maybe and the last thing I said to them I said um, I, I was just guided to say it I said when you think you can't remember look to the stars and you'll remember who you are and I knew I was saying both the stars outside in the sky but also the stars within the earth and the stars within them because they still had the stars within them they just couldn't see it so this was my one of my only experiences where i i actually came to this whole uh you know group of beings that uh at this level that had forgotten themselves
3: oh my goodness girl what what a story this this has got to be a movie eventually, you know that, right? <laughs> you know this has got to be a movie. I can only see the movie happening right now. Wow. So let me ask you this. Uh, can you give a, an, a, a definition, the difference between a fairy and an elemental? <laughs> yeah. What's the difference between the yeah. two? Because a lot of people get them confused.
4: Yes, I know, and... I, I love this question. So what I'd love to do is I actually want to start from a really high level and then we'll kind of like work our way through. And um, I'm actually going to start and mention this. Um, I'm going to actually share the this imagery that's going to bring us in to the energy of fairy a little bit. And the reason I want to kind of backdoor it like this is because some of you may remember there is this old Folk, mm, superstition that says never look at a fairy head on right you just don't look at a fairy head on I don't it's in a lot of the Celtic folktales and of course within all folktales there's um, a, a grain of truth and we just need to learn how to trace that code that was left there for us by our ancestors. And so what that is reminding us for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear is that it is reminding us that when we work with fairy, when we work with these subtle energies to come at it straight on and sort of directly, it almost like the mark, (laughs) the goalposts will always move. (laughs) It just it's the nature of fairy. It kind of has that a little bit of that Wily energy and it's meant it's meant to journey us. It's meant it's meant to journey us into ourselves and to really catalyze an initiatory journey. That helps us know ourselves more deeply. And so the invitation when working with fairy is to kind of come at it sideways, to kind of backdoor our (laughs) way in. And, And, of course, even when we're looking at them and when we're working with these beings, you know, another way that this whole not looking at them directly really plays out is that if we really soften our gaze, it's when we move into that space of heart consciousness that we can begin to feel these energies. We can begin to commune with them at that deepest level. So of course this, that, that superstition has a lot of um, beautiful layers of meaning that we can learn from. And so let's backdoor it to kind of come in. So the, what I want to, what I want to share is I want us to just take a moment and say, use our imaginations because I'm just going to share and transmit some, some images. So use our imagination and just let's choose a starting point in nature, on the earth, feet on the, feet on the ground, feel that soil. And I want us to all move, descend in consciousness, down into the depths, into the core of Gaia, into the core where we're told is a hot, molten iron crystal, And I want us to kind of be with the energy of that. But now I want us to open up all of our senses so that we can begin to see with our inner eyes. And when we begin to move into this sort of inner realm space, we don't just see a molten crystal. What we might begin to come into contact with is this sort of fountain of fire this sort of well of light this almost this pulsing breathing beautiful i'm just seeing this this gorgeous almost like swirling vortex that almost breathes and pulses song codes all through the many layers of the earth and up to the surface world where we spend most of our days, these song codes go out and up and it is these song codes, just like that flame that is housed in the center of Gaia, that beautiful energy, that well of, that I call the well of light. It is this place that holds the eternal dream of Gaia's heart womb. And what I mean by eternal dream is I I don't mean some static reality or age old, long past paradise consciousness that doesn't exist. What I mean is this ever evolving, ever expanding, dynamic sort of living dream that pulses and breathes in tune and in alignment with the heart of the galaxy itself there is this pulsing and there is a conversation that's happening and again this dream is like this vision of originality that lives and breathes and if we tune into this this place within gaia we also may know that this place lives within each of us that this place is not lost this this energy that i'm talking about this living memory that is both past present and future that comprises the great destiny the living destiny of this planet and all its sacred ecology that energy is what i call fairy that is fairy it is that living Memory of the land. That is not the memory of the past, but the memory of the ancient future. And it lives within each of us. But, of course, so many of us have forgotten. And this is fairy. Now, from that, and in woven in deepest, <laughs> within the deepest harmony with those codes are the beings that I refer to as the she S-I-D-H-E. It's a Celtic word and it means, well, it has many meanings, but one of the meanings is people of peace. And the she are, in some, some would say, our ancient ancestors. That we even share an ancient ancestor that goes all the way back. But when We came as star beings and I know it happened in different waves of different waves throughout the planetary history, right? There were just different star seedings of the planet, but as the star seedings began to come and descend into the etheric realm of Gaia, when Gaia was still in her early stages of heating and cooling, this was a time when these energies these singing song these beings would weave and dance within the frequencies of Gaia. And as she began, began to journey more deeply and have an experience across multiple dimensions, including the more denser third dimension, the physical dimension that most of us live in, in a day-to-day basis, what happened is a choice point occurred. And there was a what some refer to as the split. And at this point, this, of course, some, some look at this as a, you know, a negative event, a sad event, and we can have all kinds of feelings about it, but it was a split and what the split was. And I'm going to kind of make it a little um, caricature here um, to just give a little, a little humor, but it was like the split happened and two parties that arose from that center that center expression that was dancing and weaving within the early stages and star seeding of Gaia, two parties split off and one said, I'm going to have an experience deep in the realms of matter. And they began their descent. And those became what we know as our modern day humans. They descended deeply into matter. They had a vertical experience. And then there was another, the other group of beings, the the other party that split from the original center said, we are going to explore the many layers and textures and nuances and colors and song codes and frequencies. We're going to explore from a horizontal capacity. We're not going to descend deeply into matter. We're going to explore along these bandwidths of within the Gaian sacred ecology. And together but apart, these two parties began to have their experiences, began to weave with the many experiences and energies of Gaia over many, many thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. And, of course, what happened is many of the humans forgot that this moment in time even existed. They forgot where they came from and all of this. So the way that I look at the beings that I call fairy, that I also, I use the word fairy, fae, she, the people of peace, uh, elven ones, I use these words synonymously. I am speaking about those beings, those beings who remain. They, like us, have the star codes deeply embedded within their hearts. But they have a woven relationship almost outside of time, weaving within what I call the web of weird, within the many strands of Gaia. They have that deep relationship. And, and I'm talking about weird, W-Y-R-D, which is that beautiful Norse word that um, we get our modern-day modern day word weird from. And it just means, well, loosely translated, it means destiny. And that is the perfect word for these, other, these fairy beings that I'm talking about. These fairy beings are, if we look at the etymology of the word fey, it always comes back to the meaning of destiny or fate. It came from the word fate in Latin, and that was about destiny or fate. Why would they have named these beings, the she, the people of peace, the good folk? Why would they have called them destiny? And it is because our destinies and theirs are interlinked, are intertwined. And we're being called to remember one another so we can, again, another caricature, but we can kind of come back together after thousands of years of kind of going our separate ways and having an experience in the way that we did so we can come together and share these beautiful codes and beautiful experiences we've had so we can both be enriched from it and then together we can move forward in alignment with Gaia's dream. Those are the she and the fairy beings, whereas the elemental beings, as I see it, as I see them, as I've worked with them, of course, they have a very, you know, nothing, of course, is separate within when we begin to work with the sacred ecology of Gaia. And so when we're talking about these energies of fairy, of course, they're woven in to the energies of fairy. But the way that I see the elementals is different as almost arising the energy they are the energies of the earth they have come from the earth they and in some ways that's why i think they don't have as much a, um their consciousness is not as individuated as ours is or as a member of the race of the fairy or she people is um but these elemental beings are what i would consider they are the nature's spirits they are the spirits of nature. They are the ones who are deeply connected with the the ecological systems, with the trees and with the plants and with the flowers. And make no mistake, of course, when I work with these beings, I don't see them as Tinkerbell either. <laughs> I actually see them as as beautiful, um, almost uh, like earth angels. They're they're beautiful beings, and um, they they're not little, you know, cartoon, little, they're, they're sweet, but they're not cartoon beings. They're very beautiful. And I have a great deal of respect for them. And everything that I learned about the elementals and how to work with the elementals, I learned from the fairy people, the she, or rather I was remembered (laughs) by the she, by the fairy people. So that's kind of how I see the difference between the elementals all within the, the fairy consciousness, the sacred ecology, all part of the sacred ecology of Gaia, um, but certainly serving different roles and certainly um, very different in, in consciousness and the way that they have evolved and, um, and that I experience them.
3: Oh goodness, girl. There's so much that you and I can talk about, but let me ask you this. <laughs> in all your research, did you ever find anything that would come up that would would trigger a 500-year program? Have you been have you been tracking in 500-year increments? of different things that you've been tracking because I have. And one of the things that happened to me is is I had an incident happen in Yucatan where I came face-to-face with a fairy and gave her a Giza crystal. She put it in her mouth and made this high-pitched sound and was translated as, thank you so much, I have not heard from Cairo, Egypt for 500 years. I about flipped out when this happened, okay? I about lost it. But it did oh. happen, and I, had, and I had people with me that witnessed this.
4: Oh, I can feel that. As you're speaking about it, Lavendar, I can feel that.
3: So do you oh. have anything that you've been tracking that has a 500-year program with it?
4: No, I have The only cycles that... I really have been tracking is of course the great year, the twenty six thousand year cycle. That's been the the big well, me cycle. too. I, I am yes. tracking
3: that one, yes, big big time. yes
4: yeah, so tell me about the five hundred year cycle because what is it connected to? Is it connected to astrological cycling? Well, or is
3: it Several things. Well, first of all, our declaration of independence is sitting at two hundred and fifty years because of the Pluto transit. So, and we're looking at now, you know, what's happening in our country. We're at the halfway point of freedom, right? So 500 years ago, so many different things happened with religion. Uh, We had a, every 500 years, there's a plague. There's a scrub. The planet gets scrubbed every 500 years of people, of things. There's some kind of energetic that seems to be programmed through all of the planets and all the bloodlines. Every, it's something that several of us have been looking at recently saying, you know what, we're on a big 500-year program, and now the United States is on a 250-year program. And I'm going, wow, look at this. We're halfway through the time of, of, of the, the Declaration of Independence. Of course, then, you know, when they wrote the Declaration and the Constitution, we didn't have the Internet, And and women weren't even allowed to speak. So, you know, a lot has changed. And with it being 250 years, this is the time that we have to make the change because the next 250 years have to be in a way of evolution. And I'm so hoping that there's going to be a third political party, and I hope they call themselves the evolutionists because that's what we're going through right now is a big-time evolutionary jump.
4: Well, you know, as you're talking, you know, little files in my brain are kind of <laughs> unfolding, and you know, and they're kind of unlocking and go boop bloop, bloop out. And I'm wondering if, you know, I think what I'm what I'm going to share is a, a. I have a sense that this is actually connected to an older cycle, but I'm curious because when you were talking, I just got the ping around the dragons, and. And so I I don't know if you work with dragons a lot, but the dragons were a later, they came, they were a much later phase in my work where they really started appearing to me. And, um, and I actually was part of a, and supported this global massive dragon awakening on the planet. And it wasn't that the dragons weren't here and they hadn't left, but it was like they had um, been in this uh, age old, timeless sleep out of time uh, in the deep inner planes and had been working and dreaming with the earth from a dream time, trans like state. But now this was time for them to awaken and and really move into this sort of conscious sort of co-creative partnership with the earth because the time had come where you know humanity was ready so what has happened and this has been happening in the last four five six years is that i have been invited to different places on the earth and the dragon energies a dragon will awaken for example and then the dragon, I will watch as they trace the old song lines and they re, it's like they're doing a rewiring. There's a reconfiguring happening with all of the ley lines on the planet. And the dragons, when their flight patterns actually help both move the energy and the flows of the ley lines, but they actually help create, they can create new ones. Like dragons are these creator beings. They can originate these new ley lines. So when I was recently in um, Glastonbury on my recent pilgrimage and just last month, what, what I became aware of was that there was a massive dragon movement and dragons were moving from certain nodes on the planet that they had been at for a long time as almost like little conclaves, like little energy centers, and the energy was dispersing and moving. The energy is moving to different places, and where a lot of the energy was moving that I was seeing it move was from the east, meaning places like you know Egypt, India, and even Europe, and it's moving to North and South America. And I was seeing it come and flood in, and the dragons flood flood in more dragons flood in all along the ridge line here at the blue Ridge mountains, and then coming down and down around the bottom of the u s and down in and I'm just wondering I don't know what time cycle they're on but as you were talking lavender they were just coming into my awareness and i was just wondering if what you're talking about which is these 500 year cycles has something is somehow connected to the the movement of the dragons right now that's happening on the planet as they're reshuffling well, i'm wondering
3: i'm wondering also that maybe every 500 years the dragon awakens
1: it goes in
3: goes into the grid it goes into the ley lines i know between mountains that there is there is a lot of motion between mountains right now and they're called the dragon ley lines that are being awakened between two mountains i know that's happening now yeah yeah it could be it could be that 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 this dragon energy maybe only comes up ever so often to help Gaia and the fairies and the bloodlines and the cleansing of the planet, because we know that this 26,000 year cycle that we're in is now bringing to the planet a lot of walk-ins from different places. We have a lot of people leaving and a lot of people coming, so we're we're in a, a huge um, time of transition.
4: You know, I just, I just, when I was over in, um, in the lands of England and Wales and I was, uh, I spent some time on the coast of Cornwall and it was, I was, uh, really called to come out one evening. Uh, I was spending my evenings actually watch, walking the coastline, uh, dramatic coastline of sea cliffs and you know, raging, crashing sea below that I is so striking. And of course that's on the western side, so you get to see the sunset. And I was coming out every night at sunset, which is about ten o'clock at night in the summertime there. And um and one of the evenings I was um guided to uh and invited to collect an an essence of the energies that were unfolding. And what I had seen and experienced was these dragon energies of land, sea, and sky. And they were forming these great sacred mandalas in the sky with their flight patterns. And as I collected the essence and and went into this holy communion with these beings, what I saw was that they held in that moment and and with the essence, they held um, the medicine to support us at the end of a cycle, as we come to a transition, both personally, as we all do in our lives, but also globally and planetarily, it's to support that reconfiguration that always happens. And it's like, you know, we're, I'm always excited for the new, the new, 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 the new, but let's face it, like change is really destabilizing. And so this, what I understood about the medicine that they were offering, you know, humanity, Through their flight patterns and through this essence collection was that they were supporting this reconfiguration in order to help us reconfigure more, more gently, more harmoniously and and help us stabilize through the reconfigurations that are happening on the planet at this time.
3: Oh, I think you're on to something, absolutely. I've got to ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to.
4: Okay.
3: In your astrological chart, do you have any zero-zero planets?
4: Zero-zero. Um, my nadir and my midheaven are zero degrees um, Aquarius and Leo, but I don't know what the seconds, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know what the minutes are on them.
3: Okay, because what I'm finding is people that have zero, zero planets, they have a way of stepping out of the Earth and going into dimensions and portal work and elemental work.
4: And does it have to be zero degrees and zero minutes? Do, have you found that, or no, can it, it be zero it, degrees? It has to be
3: where for, for, for one sign changes to another, it goes zero. It, go, it goes into zero point. It's almost like it's a dead zone, it's a place where you jump, and there's no movement until until they tell you you can move. You know what I'm saying? It's like,
1: yeah, yeah.
3: So you've got to have it somewhere in your chart. You've got to because of the way you work.
4: Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I know. So, yeah, other than that zero degrees nadir and then the zero degree midheaven, my other planets are all, almost all of them are in the 12th house and in a beautiful Libra stellium with Saturn sitting on my Libra ascendant and Pluto right underneath him having a party. And then um, the other, and then the moon (laughs) is in (laughs) Cancer in the ninth house. So what what year were you born? I was born in 82. 82. So I've been
3: tracking for a long time now all the kids that were born after 1980, and I had to put my information in a bank vault and hold them until you guys were up and grown and had your own children, okay? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm, I'm going to be 80 in December, but it's time for me to release this information, and you're part of the group that needs to know some of the things that I've been holding in the bank vault all these years. And a lot of it has to do with the work that you're doing.
4: Wow. Well, so you and I, I need to
3: you and I need to talk later. Um, be sure and email me your phone number and a good time to call you because we need to talk.
4: I would love that, Lavendar. I think we have lots to talk about.
3: Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Wait till I tell you about <laughs> wait till I tell you about the elementals that left Saudi Arabia and landed here in Arkansas.
4: <laughs> oh my goodness! An elemental migration. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, to they again.
3: came over on a magic carpet for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: well i i usually turn this over to my co-host but we were such in a heavy conversation i just didn't want to stop talking to you but at this time i would like to pass you over to my co-host Ariel. she has the switchboard would you be willing to answer any questions that anybody has on the switchboard
4: i would yes
3: Okay, and, and be sure. And uh, anytime you have a new book or anything where you're taking people on a tour, if you just need five or ten minutes to announce it on our radio show, we would love to, for you to do that. You always have a, a, a an invitation to uh, to spread your message far and wide. Okay.
4: Thank you so much, Lavendar. I deeply appreciate it, and I feel so honored. Thank you. Well, I feel so
3: honored that you have come to the planet to do this work and not everyone will understand what you're doing, but let me tell you, we have a, a group of beings in our starseed community that will rally around you because they know and have experienced a lot of things that you've been writing about. Mm-hmm. So don't think that you're by yourself with this because, you know, um, I think the Kraken has awakened a lot of people
1: <laughs>
3: and and I think that a lot of People that are awake now are, are truly finding their, uh, their masterships from other lifetimes, and I think they're stepping into them right now. And we're witnessing it every day. And you're one of the people that I can say that I'm witnessing your mastership. That's for sure.
4: I'm just deeply receiving all your words. Thank you so much, Lavendar. So back to you, Arielle.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, um, to complete the answer uh, to the question that you asked, it can be zero degrees and minutes. So it doesn't have to be zero, 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 zero.
4: It oh, be I zero see. De-
0: yeah, it can be zero degrees and 30 minutes. As long as the first two are zeros, that is the crack between the worlds. It can be on a planet. It can be on a house cuff. But, I mean, you having it on your uh you're mid heaven, that's no accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for I, sharing I, that, Ariel. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I am so I, I don't even know what the word. I admire you. Uh, I'm 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 uh, enthused. Your energy is so. Um, I'm just enthusiastic and exciting and, I mean, you're so passionate. You know, we, we have a lot of guests that come on the show and their, their material is right on, really well researched, but they, they deliver it in more of a, you know, matter of fact, like, you know, like a, a professor uh, just telling the facts that you, I mean, you really got me going. It's like, oh, wow, <laughs> I want to go through that. I want to go do that. Yeah, so... Um, I, you know what, I, I've, I lived in England for a while, and I have been um, in those places that you were talking about, and I know that it is just steeped, absolutely steeped, and there's so much over there that we haven't even discovered yet, um, but you do take people on journeys so you, I yeah.
4: I actually do not anymore. I all of that shifted during COVID and I uh, I was given an opportunity to reevaluate the way in which my work was expressing in the world and what I came to um realize was that my place for right now of course I will be I still travel and pilgrimage and you know, listen to the call of my own heart and the land, but I actually um, am really anchored here at New Avalon, which is in, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it's here that I spend a lot of my time weaving with uh, the fairy, the elven ones, and collecting essences, and I actually, when I go to And when I travel to the places that I'm called to go to, I also collect essences if I feel that sacred invitation from the land or the being. And so this is kind of my way of sharing those medicine codes with, humanity rather than taking people on trips with me and maybe I will one day but at this point it doesn't feel like that's um, the direction that my work wants to be in right now. I'm spending so much time having so much fun um, with the essences and teaching and and writing and yeah. And, and of course I'm teaching people, you know, I have a class coming up on Thursday where I'm sharing about how to create your own essence potion, working with the fey and elven and dragon essences. A lot of people don't know how to weave those into a potion a formula for themselves. So uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, uh, that's kind of how I'm working with people now is sharing the essences.
0: Okay, great, and do you do this online, or is it just for people that are local to your area?
4: so the essences are actually a, a like a physical um, product that they can order from my etsy store and they 're like flower essences, but they 're most i do have flower essences and tree essences, but the special ones that i 'm really known for are the fairy and elven essences and the dragon essences and the ones of sacred places. So these are basically the frequencies, the medicine songs of the, the being or the place. And then I collect that and I preserve that in water with brandy. And then those are sold as, so somebody can actually take them a few drops you know, ingest them, and have an experience with these energies. And these energies, of course, they support you. You know, they work with healing and remembrance and enchantment, and they're just beautiful. So Elemental Whispers is the name of my essences, and I have an Etsy store, and you can just go to my website, and it'll connect you to all that.
0: Okay, so once again, your website is Diamira Rose, and your name is spelled D-I-O-M-I-R-A. Rose R O S E dot com, and from there you can link to her Etsy store. You can see all the great stuff. And I, I, I took, I did take a look at your website, and you've got, you've got a lot of um, uh, uh, teaching aids and things that people can can read to you know begin their own journeys. Oh, there's so, so um,
4: many free resources. There's blog posts. There's videos. There's uh, meditations. There's all kinds of stuff, and there's a big button that says start here, so it's super easy to navigate. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Oh, great. Great. Well, I, you know, I, I think that um, Lavendar needs to schedule you uh, for another show because this is just a small portion of who I feel you are and you've got, you've got so much more to share and teach. So um, I think that, um, Lavender, we need to bring D'Amira back on um, to pick up where we're leaving off now. So um, would you like to do that?
4: I would love to do that. I think that okay. would be a lot of fun.
0: Okay. Yeah, and uh, I, we, we didn't have any callers,
4: but maybe next time. That's fine, and I just want to thank both of you for the what you do on the planet. I know you both have been at it for a long time, and not just on the show, but just doing the work that you're doing, the trips, Arkansas, and um, it's just really beautiful, and I just wanted to honor you both, too, for the work that you do in the world, and to support the consciousness awakening on the planet at this time.
0: Well, thank you, and it's it's our... Privilege, and certainly everybody has their own thing that they need to do simultaneously in concert because, you know, if we all did the same thing, the work wouldn't get done. So everybody has their name on something different. We all do that, but in concert with each other. So it's kind of a, a, a unified purpose of expanding and uh, turning up the light
4: it really does take a village. <laughs> yeah. It does. It
0: does. Yeah, A big one. So I thank you so much for spending this time with us. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing what's new on um, the next time you come back.
4: Great. Thank you so much, Ariel.
0: You're so welcome. And for everyone uh, listening, we'll be back two weeks from tonight. And um, please remember... Show compassion instead of judgment, and it will make a big difference in your life. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.